From the open source, it's Healthy You, a podcast about your well-being. And now, here's your host, Sharon Stevens. The 1973 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that the Constitution protected a woman's right to an abortion was a landmark decision. So why are we still talking about it? I'm your host, Sharon Stevens, and this is Healthy You. Susan Appleton is here to explain why Roe v. Wade is still a hot topic. A Washington University in St. Louis law professor, Appleton is a family law and feminist theory expert. Her research and teachings focus on reproductive justice, parentage, gender, sexualities, and public assistance. Susan, welcome to Healthy You. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. A half century has passed since the passage of Roe versus Wade, and pro-life versus pro-choice is still a heated battle. With this in mind, let's talk a little bit about history. Abortion's a health care decision, so why is it also a legislative issue? Well, I don't think it should be. I agree with you that it is a health care decision, and we typically look to medical experts and our physicians to help us with health care rather than our politicians or legislators. Um, but abortion became a legal issue in America in about the second half of the 19th century. Until then, abortion was a common practice. Home remedies and midwife services were offered freely in so-called ladies' magazines. Um, and this was certainly true for early pregnancy terminations, before quickening or before perception of fetal movement. Um, before quickening, there was no way to distinguish an early pregnancy from a so-called menstrual obstruction. So these interventions from midwives and home remedies could be thought of as just ways to get one cycle back on track. But I think it's really interesting to investigate why states started prohibiting abortion in the 19th century. And historians have developed um, or identified two different reasons. First of all, physicians led the charge, and they were seeking to drive midwives and others whom they called irregular practitioners out of business so that they could take over the provision of reproductive health care. It was an anti-competitive move. Um, physicians claimed to have superior knowledge about such matters, saying that midwives and women themselves lacked knowledge of pregnancy and the developing fetus. Um, but there's evidence that midwives and the patients themselves knew precisely what was going on. Second, race and class played an enormous role. This was a time when white, upper-class women were controlling their fertilities, limiting family size, partly through abortion. But poor, non-white immigrants and their families were moving to the U.S., prompting fears of what alarmists called race suicide. So what was the remedy? That was to expand the size of white families to counteract this the arrival of these um, of these immigrants. Um, and it was against that background that state legislatures began to prohibit abortion in the second half of the 19th century. And I think it's important to note a few things about those prohibitions. First of all, they generally contained exceptions for patients who had life-threatening pregnancies. Second, such laws always criminalized the behavior of the abortion provider not the woman herself. And this was true regardless of how active a role the woman might have played in arranging the abortion. And this pattern has continued today with the patient portrayed as a victim of abortion rather than an active um, 
participant. Um, and, but we're starting to see some erosion just now um, in 2023 after Dobbs um, with some legislators saying that um, the next move is to criminalize the behavior of women in uh, their own abortions. And then I think the third thing to keep in mind in terms of the history was that at the time in the 19th century, there was no such thing as um, marital rape. That was considered a legal impossibility. Marriage was understood as consent to a husband's sexual access to his wife whenever he wanted and regardless of her wishes. And as a result, without effective contraception or access to abortion, marriage might entail pregnancy after pregnancy, childbirth after childbirth, to the great um, detriment of those wives. Let's get back to Roe just for a moment. Okay. Why did it become the test case? How did that happen? Well, recent graduate of the University of Texas Law School, Sarah Weddington, and some of her colleagues in Texas were operating an abortion referral service, helping connect those who wanted abortions with providers. Um often um, illegally and or across the border in Mexico. Um, Weddington herself had had to travel to Mexico for an abortion while a student, while a law student. Um, So she challenged Texas's ban, which had an exception only for abortions necessary to save the patient's life, um, something we see still today. Um, But at the time, um, several states had loosened their abortion restrictions. Um, So women of means did travel to states or foreign countries where abortion could be legally obtained, whereas um, women without means were typically um, forced to get such services illegally. And there was a very high maternal mortality rate um, as a result. In fact, physicians who had been instrumental in helping to enact anti-abortion laws in the 19th century became allies with advocates for legal abortion at the time because of what they saw in the emergency room after unsafe illegal abortions. And sometimes not in an emergency room, sometimes (laughs) what they used to call back alley. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I'm saying after the back alley abortion, sometimes um, those with complications, life um, often fatal complications, showed up in the emergency Room. The case came to the court then in the wake of two successful challenges um, to bans on the use or distribution of contraception. Um, and in those contraception cases, the Supreme Court invoked a right to privacy. So Roe was argued under the right to privacy. It was first argued before the court in 1971, but the court was short two justices it was um there were two open seats on the court and it was re-argued in 1972 and then in january 1973 a majority held that the right to privacy included the right to terminate a pregnancy within certain limits this is healthy you by the open source back in a minute this episode is sponsored by the national drug card america's number one discount prescription choice The National Drug Card saves money on all FDA-approved drugs for the uninsured, high co-payers, and meds that are not covered by insurance. The free National Drug Card even saves on pet meds. Go to WeSaluteVets.com. There you'll find the link for more information. Share what you've learned about the National Drug Card with friends, family, and pet owners. The National Drug Card is accepted nationwide at nearly all pharmacies. 
Remember, the National Drug Card is absolutely free. Just print and submit to your pharmacist. The link to more information is on the We Salute website, WeSaluteVets.com. protect an individual's zone of privacy against state laws. Already within that zone were laws about marriage and contraception. And the court decided, okay, well, abortion fits under this umbrella as well. This was a huge victory for women because at the time, one in five maternal deaths were the result of an illegal, unsafe abortion. The statistics, as well as the personal stories of women who are now grandmothers, tell tales of injury, hardship, and even death as they sought out illegal reproductive health care in an earlier time. I couldn't have that baby. Because if I did, and I died, who would take care of the little baby I had? And so I asked the young woman where I worked, and they sent me to a woman, and she put, I think it was a strip of slippery elm bark up my uterus. Two days later, I had a screaming fever, and I was in such pain. And so I went back out to see this woman, and she said, I told you not to come back. And I said, I have nowhere else to go. This is Healthy You by The Open Source. I'm your host, Sharon Stevens. The pro-life movement, as they call themselves, uh, (laughs) grew up uh, a few years later. And I'm just curious about what prompted its existence. Well, I'd prefer to call it the anti-abortion movement rather than the pro-life movement because, um, or we could call it the pro-fetal life movement, because I think we can find many examples of abortion opponents who do not support measures that would respect or promote life outside the womb, no matter how determined they are to respect life inside the womb. And I don't mean to suggest all anti-abortion um, advocates are in this camp, but but many are, and you can see from voting records of certain legislators um, that phenomenon. Um, certainly leaders of certain religions have long espoused anti-abortion beliefs, um, but I accept the insights of historians who say that the modern-day anti-abortion movement stemmed from efforts in the late 20th century to achieve a political realignment that would unite traditional Catholic voters with white evangelical Protestants, creating a new right. Uh, um, and um, I mean the right side, new right side of the political spectrum. <laughs> um, so this move began in the Nixon administration, and it included our local firebrand, the late Phyllis Schlafly. Um, and as one historian has said, that you know we could, th- the thought was that you could unite Republicans under an anti-abortion banner by having um, Catholic voters who traditionally voted Democrat join with others who were opposed to calls on the left for racial justice, um, um, opposition to the war in Vietnam, um, the development of feminism, and the like. So it was um, a political effort to create a coalition, and abortion was the unifying theme. Okay. Now, Roe herself uh, actually did give birth, uh, put the baby up for adoption, and initially she was part of what's called the pro-choice movement. Um, But years before her death, she renounced that, and she became a pro-life activist. Uh, Do you think that she had an impact? I think that 
that was politically useful. There's also a movie that she made um, just before she died where she renounced those anti-abortion views. So I think pinning down her specific positions is a little bit difficult. I do think that she um, valued being in the spotlight, um, was happy to get attention, and I think she did have a very hard life, and I respect the fact that people are free to change their minds about important issues. I think it's really interesting that her her regret, if you want to call that, about um, that she at least at one point in her life claimed for her involvement is not unlike the regret of others who have surrendered babies for adoption. Um, um, And I think it's more in line with what we've seen in, in that area than with what we've seen in abortion, where empirical studies have shown that those who choose abortion do not, for the most part, have any regret about it. How do you see what the majority of Americans want? Do you, do you believe, as some people would say, uh, that they that most people want legal abortion rights? I think most people want to know that they can make their own decisions about their bodies and their medical care without political interference. And so I think that there is a common thread that unites libertarians, which often align with the political right, but want the government to stay out of our personal business, and those who understand that abortion is precisely one of those issues and have been advocates for legalized abortion. This is Healthy You by The Open Source. Back in a minute. Stop smoking. Lose weight. Stop worrying. Find peace of mind. Changing behavior is tough. You've tried it many times. Well, there is help. Renowned psychiatrist George Hewlett developed a method of self-hypnosis and guided meditation that has helped many people. His method is now available online. Presented by the Worldwide Talent Group, these meditations are available wherever you listen to music. iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, YouTube, it's there. Stop smoking, lose weight, find peace, avoid panic attacks, and more. Simply Google Worldwide Talent Group Meditations. In approximately 15 minutes, you may begin to feel some relief. See the tremendous list of meditations. Search Worldwide Talent Group Meditations. That's Worldwide Talent Group Meditations. And feel better. I had an incident um, with my own mother who was in her late 30s and she had had four children. My mother and father were divorced and she became pregnant and she um, tried to uh, abort, which I think she succeeded in doing her own um, abortion and was found eating up in the bathroom and had to be taken off to the hospital for about two weeks and we went and lived with a a friend of of ours um, for two weeks and I was 10 years old. And um, I think that was um, extremely frightening. As a law professor, what do you think the overturning of uh, Roe v. Wade uh, means or has meant for women in this country? I think it's a huge step backwards. I do see abortion laws as law, well, abortion restrictions as 
laws that attempt to reinforce particular understandings of gender and gender norms and gender roles um, that women's primary destiny whether they want it or not is maternity and I so I have always seen abortion as an issue of sex discrimination a position that the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg made clear in some of her writings and opinions and I think it's no coincidence that the same politicians who are targeting abortion and um, want to make it or keep it criminal, as the case may be, are also those targeting medical care um, for transgender persons. Mm-hmm. As a law professor, are you are you really following the upcoming elections for twenty twenty four? Because I think it's it's difficult, particularly in light of Dobbs and some of the Supreme Court's recent opinions, to create a wall between law or the rule of law and politics. Um, We used to be able to teach our students that precedent mattered, that um, one case followed the next, that um, and that we could understand um, law perhaps in an idealized way as something apart from politics. But um, that's no longer true, and I think the campaign to create a judiciary that would overturn Roe versus Wade is one aspect of that. I think the fact that the Supreme Court in Dobbs used reasoning that goes back to a time when neither women nor African Americans were full citizens <laughs> is is another. Um, and so I, I think that... Um, Students need something a little different today. We want to teach respect for law, but also be transparent um, about some of the, its political underpinnings. So you've had to kind of change the way you're teaching. I do, um, and and I've had to I've had to provide support for students who um, I think are very cynical now about what the rule of law might mean, particularly when it comes to Supreme Court decisions. Thank you, Susan. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. This was the first of three episodes about reproductive health. To listen to segments two and three, go to HealthyUSTL.com. Thank you for listening to Healthy You. I'm your host, Sharon Stevens.